feel foods to stay here in North Carolina. And I think it is imperative moving forward that if we don't do something to let them know they are welcome here, that they'll be leaving this state. Because I do know there is other states courting them to leave. And if they leave this state, these rural and small towns we have in eastern North Carolina will dry slam up. They're having a hard enough time as it is today to survive. But if these folks that buy these livestock you're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Welcome to Domecast. I'm Jordan Schrader, hosting this week, and with me are Colin Campbell and Lauren Horsch of the North Carolina Insider, Andy Spey of the News and Observer and a special guest, Taylor Knopf of NC Health News, who's with us to talk about some of the health-related legislation that was going through last week and is coming up. Um, so we've had a lot to uh, talk about, but uh, let's first look ahead. Uh, they've dispensed with most of the bills that have to go to Governor Roy Cooper, and now they're working on uh, constitutional amendments and local bills. So the first thing that we know will probably come up is voter ID. Uh, what else is, uh, is likely to appear? So voter ID is one. When I talked to uh, Senate Leader Phil Berger late last week, he said he thought there was uh, movement for the um, income tax cap. Um, I think the Senate's actually already passed that, so the Senate doesn't need to take further action, but the House would need to uh, pass that in the supermajority to get that on the ballot this year. Um, and then the House is saying, uh, but I think between five and seven, yeah, they which is the number six usually is the yeah, number representative, five and seven. Uh, representative David Lewis, who's the uh, chairman of the Rules Committee in the House, wouldn't uh, confirm how many we might be seeing, but he did say somewhere between five and six, and then added more than five and less than seven. Or did I say that right? Yeah, more than five and less than seven, so somewhere between five and seven. So that's just betting that. that reporters can't do that math. And well, yeah. most of us can't. Most of us are trying hard. Yeah, and they didn't, yeah. and and he didn't uh, commit to any topics. I mean, other than voter ID, which he he helped file in the House. So that's yeah. And Berger said voter ID has support in the Senate. So I think that's that's probably our uh, if you're you're betting on which ones will go through in the next week or so. I think that would be the the safe bet. And then uh, if you're, you're trying to get to the number six as you come up with the pro- uh, proposals that are out there, uh, we've got the hunting and fishing uh, constitutional amendment, um, victims bill of victim rights. bills of rights, Marcy's laws. It's known um, that's been uh, lobbied for recently. Um, then you've got. Uh, Potentially, I haven't heard really talk about this recently, but it is out there as the, the right to work yeah. uh, constitutional amendment. There uh, is also discussion of literac- removing the literacy test from the Constitution. Yeah, uh, that's a bill that exists. Uh, the, uh, take the uh, secession provision out of the Constitution. That apparently is not going anywhere. We've been pretty well assured of, of that not being a thing that they really want to do, even though that is a bill that has been filed. Um, and then there's uh, one that's lingering out there because we haven't actually seen how it would work. Uh, is the House has been looking at uh, potentially changing the a constitutional amendment would change the uh, structure of the elections board yet again uh, to pull some of the appointing power away from Governor Roy Cooper. Um, no details yet on exactly how that would work. Um, and when I talked to Berger last week, he said that uh, there hadn't been any, I think in his words, conversations of a substantive nature in Senate caucus. So uh, somewhat unclear if that has uh, supports on uh, 
uh, both sides of the, the two chambers, but we'll see uh, if something like that comes up uh, this week. Uh, and I think that pretty much covers what we've heard about, but uh, there are always surprises in that legislative building, so there's probably things that will show up in the next week or so that we aren't even thinking about right now. What would a constitutional amendment on hunting and fishing look like? I think it just you know solidifies that people have the right to hunt and fish. I don't remember the exact language, but they rolled it out sometime in the beginning of session last year yeah, in 2017. And, and they were, the sponsors, I think, were clear about, well, there's not really any threat to our hunting and fishing rights right now, but if the off chance there is in the future, it would be nice to have something in the Constitution uh, that does that. I mean, really, realistically, from a political perspective, they want something on the ballot that will get uh, conservatives out to the polls in November if they're not thrilled about other things on the ballot. And lots of people like to hunt and fish mm -hmm. and would be happy to cast a vote in favor of uh, having that right. Would it potentially protect gun rights? I, you, I think you could potentially use it for that. Um, Maybe not the, the fishing is, part. but Yeah, and of course the problem I think with any sort of hunting-related provision coming up in a um, gun control debate is the sorts of gun control provisions that are being uh, floated by Democrats and still have no chance of going anywhere in a Republican-led uh, General Assembly uh, are usually involving like assault weapons and various things that probably aren't even used in a hunting environment. Yeah, they don't, they don't often talk about you know, hunting rifles or being able to go out and shoot because they do believe a lot of Democrats hunt. Uh, so it's not just a Republican thing, but it is seen as more of a Republican base, you know, drive them out to the polls to vote on this. So I don't think any of the bills would be considered, you know, gun control or anything like that for hunters. But and they've already gotten know. bipartisan support for the Fly Fishing Museum uh, designation. Yes, very so important. That was one of the first, I think, two or three bills that the governor signed out of this session was the designate the state's official Fly Fishing Museum, which I've learned is in Bryson City and apparently is a thrilling attraction. And the uh, Victim's Bill of Rights, that's something that's been kicked around in past years. Yeah, other states have done something similar. So it's called Marcy's Law, I guess named after a victim named Marcy. I don't know exactly the details of her circumstances. But uh, basically, if you're a victim of a crime, it puts some uh, protections into the legal process where you're allowed to you're required to be informed about certain stages of the process where someone might get out or have a hearing, um, some certain confidentiality provisions, uh, I think, about uh, your role in the, the proceedings. Uh, I don't have all the details in front of me, but that's something that um, has gotten a pretty strong lobbying push. Uh, former Wake County DA Colin Willoughby is one of the uh, lead proponents of that uh, measure in this state, and they've been going all over the state to drum up support for this. So that's something we could see as a constitutional amendment this week. So voter ID, of course, is uh, possibly coming up this week, um, but we've also seen uh, other aspects of election law. You know, in 2013, they passed a big election law, which was struck down, um, and now pieces of that are coming back. Voter ID was the big piece of that, but also uh, early voting. Um, what they're talking about doing now with early voting is, is pretty different than what they did in 2013, I think. But uh, take us through what they want to, what the legislators wants to do with uh, early voting. Yeah, so the early voting bill that rolled out, this was, uh, you know, speaking of the, the process transparency issue, this bill was first introduced on Twitter at about one in the morning, um, I believe on uh, Thursday morning or after the session had ended for the night um, and was uh, voted out of committee hours later, um, was uh, completely approved by the entire legislature by the end of the day on Friday. Um, and this is a bill that uh, it's uh, being portrayed by the bill sponsors as expanding and standardizing early voting. So uh, during weekdays, the current requirement is basically uh, that the bare minimum for a county is to have the 
one site at the County Board of Elections open pretty much just business hours, nine to five. Under this provision, every site that's open would need to be open weekdays from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Um, and then the other, the I guess most controversial provision of the bill is that it takes away uh, the Saturday early voting schedule of the Saturday right before the election, uh, which is I think one of the most popular days of early voting. It's used pretty heavily by African American voters. Uh, so the concern uh, from Democrats is saying oh, clearly it's, this is kind of like Sunday voting again. You see that a lot of Democrats, a lot of African Americans are coming out on this day. So you want to take that away. Uh, the Republicans supporting it are basically saying. There are some issues with election administration that there's a fairly narrow turnaround time between the, when the early voting sites close at usually one o'clock on that Saturday before the election and getting the poll books ready for the following Tuesday with the election. So they wanted to give the uh, election workers a little bit more time. Um, of course, we in this process, they didn't consult the State Board of Elections, so it's a little bit unclear just how much of a problem Saturday voting is for the uh, election boards and the, the people that staff these things because they were not uh, consulted in the, the drafting of that bill. Uh, so that's one where, um, in a way, it does expand early voting, but there are also concerns about cost to counties, how many additional sites can they run if they have to run every site from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Uh, the concern from Republicans, I think, on, on standardizing that was that uh, a lot of counties have these patchwork of hours. So if you go to site number one, you can go there from three to six, but site number two is only open from noon to two, and so people often show up to the polls and think that they can vote, and then they can't vote, um, and that's a concern for Republicans sponsoring this bill. So this has gone uh, to Governor Cooper. Um, uh, my guess, if I had to say, I don't think he's actually weighed in specifically yet, that he'll, he will probably veto this because most Democrats were opposed to it. Um, Republicans, I think, had the votes to override it, um, but then there's probably going to be a lawsuit uh, because when it comes to voting-related bills, there's always a lawsuit. And I think just, you know, jumping in here, there's one thing, you know, we need to mention here when it comes to the process. Yes, this was ro rolled out late, and the state board wasn't, you know, brought into discussions about this, but while the committee meeting was happening, the first committee meeting on this bill was happening, the state board of elections actually scheduled an emergency meeting to discuss getting a heads up, um, and I know, Colin, you listened to that. Yeah, so. I listened to that. So basically they uh, held an emergency meeting, and it was a little bit controversial among the Board of Elections members whether they should have ha whether this was an emergency because the Republicans on the board uh, felt like uh, the board weighing in on their lack of input uh, was uh, inherently political. Of course, the chair is someone appointed by Governor Cooper. Um, I think they ultimately did get a majority in favor of sending a letter basically saying, Hey, if you're going to do an elections-related bill, could you give us 24 hours heads up so that our staff can help, you know, provide you with information you need, give you feedback on how something might work in practice? Um, I don't think that letter was received all that well because David Lewis, who was uh, the representative uh, sponsoring this early voting bill, uh, basically called out the chairman of the board of elections, saying he was a trial lawyer with no elections uh, administration. To which uh, Andy Penry, who is this. Uh, Board of Elections chair responded that uh, the professional staff of the uh, elections board has a lot of elections administration experience and they would like to weigh in and I actually noted in my column today that uh, I think some of the Republicans of the legislature are trying to suggest that because Cooper appointed the chair of the elections board that even though they have structured it as sort of a split between Republicans and Democrats that um, they're bashing the elections board even though the elections board staff some of the top people over there are pretty bona fide Republicans. Uh, mm -hmm. The executive director, Kim Strack, is the wife of a 
uh, attorney who Republicans often use to represent themselves in lawsuits, the board attorney over there, Josh Lawson, fan of the podcast, a great source for us, is a former um, George W. Bush White House staffer, so you know, not exactly a, a Roy Cooper loyalist there either. Um, but there's definitely a lot of tension uh, between uh, Elections Board and the legislature, which I think is part of why uh, there was so little discussion and input between the two uh, groups in, in this bill. Yeah, and that sort of thing is what happens when something goes through in two days and doesn't get any kind of uh, real, you know, the usual airing. Yeah, and part of me um, wonders is knowing this is going to a lawsuit if they, they wanted to pass this without having a lot of information. Because I think if you, if you have data that says that the last Saturday has X percentage of African-American voters, uh, when you've had past lawsuits that say you targeted African-American voters with surgical precision, I think was the quote from the court ruling, um, if you can say that you... Uh, didn't even consider that at all in passing this bill. Your intent might be more uh, okay with the court going forward. So that may have been part of the strategy, honestly, to uh, to try to get this through and know that a lawsuit was probably going to come and they would have to be sort of defensive about that uh, from the get-go. There's been a lot of talk about the uh, process the last few days. And, um, you know, early voting, this bill has kind of been the poster child. Um, but there's a whole lot of things uh, that have gone through with, with very little uh, notice. Uh, Lynn Bonner wrote a story about uh, a number of those and people talking about them. And, and on the early voting bill specifically, uh, she, you know, she noted that some people uh, wrote in complaining to the legislature. Uh, one Raleigh voter wrote in that the state legislature was the poster child of hollowing out democracy from within and went on about uh, uh, sneaking around in the middle of the night. And uh, uh, Senator Rick Horner uh, replied in an email, stop bothering people at such an hour. I guess the email went in at a, it came in at a late time. Um, there was another uh, email along the same lines that came in to, uh, to lawmakers. Uh, and um, Senator Clampett, as it Senator uh, Representative, Representative, Clampett. Representative Mike Clampett from, from, from Bryson City, yeah, um, you know, pushed back and said it's, uh, those with a, it's apparent that the media and those with a negative agenda have your minds poisoned to this process, uh, basically saying that these pieces of legislation weren't really rushed through. Um, so there's been a lot of talk about the process. Yeah, and at certain points, you know, the, the talking points from people who are being criticized for the process are, you know, what you'd expect. But there are a lot of situations where uh, members of both political parties said publicly during the either the committee meetings or the floor debates, I'm not sure I understand what this does. I'm not comfortable voting on this because I don't have a sense for what it is I'm voting on. I'm too... It, I'm too tired to understand it now, which is yeah. uh, clearly a bit problematic for me watching we, it. We, at one point, we got to Friday, we were still voting on bills in the House, and we had to vote on one bill three times because there was an amendment that was you know, voted out of order, and then the amendment was decided that it was in order, but they did something wrong, so then it had to come back. And so this, you know, when you're, you're moving things so fast, you're making silly mistakes, not just for us reporters making silly typos. If you read my Twitter, you know I make typos a ton. And like, they're just making silly mistakes in the legislative process because they're pushing these things back. And, and I know Colin had to sit through a rules committee meeting where lobbyists were answering questions, and that's just 
Yeah, not the, necessarily the, the how the process should go. sponsors couldn't answer questions about their own bills, so they deferred to the lobbyists in the room, who were clearly the people who had written the bills and therefore were able to better explain uh, what they actually would do and, and answer some questions uh, about it. But that's sort of the, it's like the, the, the backroom side of the legislative process gets laid bare when uh, everything is rushing through at the last minute and no one quite knows what's going on. Wait, you're saying lobbyists are really behind some of these bills? Yeah, would you believe that the hundreds of lobbyists in that building sometimes help write legislation? And I think there's a lot of critique on social media about that. People were saying, you know, how many of us voted for these lobbyists? You know, did did you tell these people to go to Raleigh and write these bills? No, you didn't. But they are doing a lot of the legwork and the movement, making sure these bills go through. And that's just how the process yeah. works. And I think where, where things run into some turbulence, and this was included, I think, in Lynn's story about the um, process issues, was when uh, one side of a particular debate is consulted in drafting the provision, and then the other side doesn't even know it's coming, which was the case with this bill involving regulations for the rent-to-own industry, basically these uh, places like Aaron's and Rent-A-Center where you can go in and, you know, get an appliance or a piece of furniture and you do a rent-to-own <coughs> agreement so that you don't have to, you know, pay for it all up front. Uh, so there was regulations that had been drafted by the industry that, of course, supported having these regulations, but then the consumer advocacy groups who wanted to seat at the table for that uh, said they didn't see the bill until, I think some of them didn't even see the bill while it was being debated. They were still uh, in the dark about what was actually in this bill, even though there was a public hearing being held essentially on the bill. That was a bill that uh, I think ran out of steam and didn't get quite across the finish line. And then I think when Lynn was talking to House Speaker Tim Moore, uh, he admitted to her that that was you know, the process working well and that something that was not all that uh, well-considered had, had not quite made it across the finish line. Yeah, he said, those who are particularly interested in these bills have been involved with them. No members have come to me of either party and pushed back and said, I haven't had time to read the bill. Um, but as, as Lynn noted, there, you know, there was a, a point where some lawmaker had a question for a member of the staff, and this is the nonpartisan staff that's supposed to research these bills, and she said you know, she couldn't answer the question because she just read the proposal. She didn't have time to do any research. So you run into things like that when you, uh, when you roll these out and move them quickly. Um, of course, the, the sort of quote of the week, if it was last week, uh, I think it was last week, uh, about transparency and process um, was from John Blust, who's leaving the legislature, and whether it's because he's leaving or because he's always kind of been a uh, somewhat of a uh, maverick or a thorn in the side of Republican leadership at times. Yeah, uh, I, the John I, McCain of the legislature. I, I like to call his floor speeches filibusters because uh, <laughs> they're they're great, and I mean he. He gets the attention of everyone in the House when he stands up to speak. He is very well respected because he is a process guy. So, I mean, he had a couple of great filibusters over the past two weeks, and I think you have the exact quote, Jordan, of yeah, what he said. Yeah, he said, uh, an iron curtain has descended on this legislature, and it just will not let go. A few people call all the shots, and their will governs, and I know the members cannot afford to go against it. I hate that you can make good arguments right on point, and somebody holds a thumb up or down, and that determines it. Um, so uh, Bless was actually, uh, obviously he was sort of speaking generally there, but he was debating uh, the bill that dealt with hog farms and trying to protect hog farms from lawsuits. Uh, so maybe we can talk just a little bit about what happened with that. Uh, Taylor and Lauren have both been following that, I think. So uh, what's the latest? Oh, I'll go. Um, <laughs> I mean, so a lot happened with this bill, and I think we talked last week or a week and a half ago really about you know, the, the, the nut milk provision of it, as well as the nuisance laws. Well, a fun, a fun new provision got through, thrown in there. Um, 
the bill now has provisions about getting raw milk because as uh, Representative Dennis Riddell, a uh, Republican from Alamance County, uh, he, he said we had some moo shiners who were going across... Oh. <laughs> who were going across the borders of you know South Carolina and Virginia to get raw milk and there there are some health concerns with raw milk they do carry some, you could become susceptible to some diseases because of drinking raw milk so um, is it illegal to buy raw milk in in North Carolina they have to go across the border you can't get- you can't buy raw milk currently and this bill does not allow you to buy it in a store though you can buy a steak in a cow i do believe in there or a goat or whatever milk you want to drink about a steak before but probably you're talking about (laughs) a different steak (laughs) like my mom has a steak in like half of a cow or something Mm -hmm. like that um so and then you can get the raw milk directly from the farmer essentially um but there were some new provisions put in but nothing was really taken out so the nuisance laws as written in that bill uh stay the same but there are some health concerns which is i think where taylor steps in on all of this Right, so neighbors of these hog farms in eastern North Carolina have been bringing up um, lawsuits for a long time, um, Smithfield being the largest one, and they recently had a victory, and many say that that's why we've had this provision added to the hog farm, or or, sorry, the farm bill um, about the hog farm nuisance lawsuits. Um, Many in the legislature are trying to protect the hog industry, saying it's a vital part of our rural economy, which has already taken many hits through the years. Uh, but meanwhile, these neighbors don't want the odor, don't want the, the pollutants coming from the spray fields and the manure. I talked to a woman who came in from Duplin County, and she said she owns a convenience store, and she has her mother's old chili dog recipe, and she loves to get sell this, but she said the, the farmers from the hog farms come in and track manure through her store, don't clean it up, don't change. And this is not something that is appealing to her customers. And so it hurts her business. Um, other people say that this is coming. They can feel the spray coming from their back porches. So kind of debate over whether or not they should have the right to sue for damages. And part of the bill, and correct me if I'm wrong, was you would have to live within a half mile in order to qualify um, legally to bring a lawsuit. And I don't think... I don't think that changed, did it? No, that didn't change. They, they clarified it because there was some confusion of where the half mile would be measured. But, yes, that's still in the provision. And some of those things Taylor was talking about, you know, the spraying and the hog lagoons, now those are all, you know, accepted farming practices. So that bill lays out that because those are accepted, you know, hog farming practices, those are not a nuisance. Um, and going back to, you know, the talk about the farmers that are doing this, even uh, Senator Phil Berger, who's the – leader in the Senate, he, he brought up Billy Kinlai, do you believe his name is, who is the owner of the Murphy Brown Farm in Duplin County that was at the center of that recent lawsuit. And, you know, he was talking about how the lawsuit affected Billy, but there was little discussion about how, you know, the farming practices affected the people living next to them, which is where a lot of the concerns are because there are big health issues with the spraying and the hog lagoons and all sorts of stuff like that. It's, there's a lot there. I think one thing that's interesting to point out about this is that there were multiple legislators, uh, not just Democrats, but Republicans too, who asked for explanations and, uh, you know, asked uh, Jimmy Dixon and asked um, Brent Jackson Jackson as to how they came up with the language for the bill. And in some cases, uh, they didn't have answers. And a lot of people pointed out that this became um, 
a pro or anti uh, you based on your support of this bill you're either pro or anti farmer and uh, we should point out what was it Wednesday or Thursday a, a large group of farmers were actually yeah. down in I, downtown I Raleigh in the Capitol yeah, watching the debate I don't remember what day but there was definitely the day this went through the Senate there was a large group of farmers in the gallery and when it passed the Senate and I do have to note that it was amended a lot in the Senate they were basically doing committee work on the floor and Senator Brent Jackson brought in a big new amendment to include new language um, but the farmers were in the gallery and it did as Andy say become if you don't vote for this bill you are anti-farm and you know people need to know that your groceries don't come from the grocery store they come from the farm and and it you know it's hard to take sides because as Democrats who were deeply concerned about the health risks and you know the other risks this bill would have um, they're saying I'm not anti-farm I just think you know we need to think about property rights and the rights of these people who are living next to these farms and it was I mean in the house there was a big group of farmers there too and I don't remember if it was voted on that day when there was a big group of farmers in the gallery because last week is a blur and every day runs into each other at some point <laughs> uh, but you know, and some people had some issues with that too. They're like, why did the farmers know this bill was coming up, but we didn't? So I think it all kind of boils down to the process again there. If Cooper vetoes that it's a little bit tighter than some of the uh, bills uh, in terms of whether they can override, right? They were they, they cleared by a margin that was pretty close to the veto override margin, I think. Yeah, it was, um, if you did the math on the sort of three-fifths majority, it wasn't a three-fifths majority in the House, but there were a lot of people who either weren't there or weren't voting. So um, it's certainly not a guarantee it would be able, it would be able to override, but uh, it's certainly possible they could uh, twist some arms and uh, perhaps get a few people to take a walk uh, in order to get the votes that they need for a successful override if the governor vetoes it. Yeah, and that math part is really essential is, you know, getting people to walk or seeing how many people are not there. You know, it could come down any day. So. Right. This thing passed the House on Thursday by a 65 to 42 affirmative vote. Okay. Um, Taylor, you've been writing a little bit about the HOPE Act, which is the latest uh, opioid bill. Uh, and one of the controversial provisions in that is that it would uh, give law enforcement easier access to the database of prescriptions that are written for controlled substances. Um, so what's what happened to that? Right, so the HOPE Act is known as the Heroin and Opioid Prevention and Enforcement Act. It's seen as part two to the STOP Act, which passed last year with broad support. Um, that bill last year limited the number of opioids that could be prescribed for acute pain. Um, this year, they're trying to stop the flow of prescription drugs into the illegal market. So the claim from bill supporters and uh, sponsors was that a lot of times drug dealers are coming in from the East Coast and down to North Carolina and uh, using fraudulent prescriptions uh, at pharmacies and leaving town before law enforcement knew what was happening. So jo uh, Attorney General Josh Stein supported this bill and he said that law enforcement officers need the access to the controlled substance reporting system, which is, as you said, tracks uh, those hard prescriptions um, such as opioids. So law enforcement could look at a person's records, pharmaceutical records, if they were in the midst of a bona fide drug investigation. So that's the key there. And the bill also provides uh, a provision that would 
um, penalize law enforcement with felony charges if they misuse this information. And uh, that's on its way to the governor after uh, being passed last week, right? Right. And so in the House, the debate went on very, very long. I think it was Thursday night. And um, an amendment was brought up by Representative Reeves and had support from Republicans as well in the House. And they said basically they wanted law enforcement to get a judge to sign off on this before looking into a person's records. Um, Dr. Greg Murphy, who's a representative in the House, kind of spoke on behalf of the bill supporters and said he didn't think that that would work because warrants take days to get. Uh, that's when a judge on the floor, who's a representative, is it Joe John? Joe John stood yeah. up and said, I've signed warrants at 3 a.m. You can get this done. So they submitted an amendment that would say, you need a judge anywhere in North Carolina to sign off on this. So that way you're not limited to your district. You can look outside it. That amendment failed by a slim margin, um, and then ended up passing. Uh, And then one last thing before we uh, go to headliner of the week, there's also a uh, product that was is apparently not insurance. That sounds a lot like insurance uh, that would cover you as an alternative to uh, traditional health insurance and would not have to obey the same kind of regulations under uh, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, uh, that normal health insurance would have to, to obey. So um, tell us a little bit about that, Taylor. Right. House Bill 933 was running through the legislature last week. It would offer nonprofits the ability to present these health benefit plans that would exempt them from nearly all state and federal regulations that cover health insurance. So it wouldn't have that required minimum set of healthcare services um, or regulate premiums or um, pre-existing condition clauses. So essentially this is a healthcare product um, that has been tried in Tennessee um, that would allow nonprofits to add these like skinny healthcare plans, if you will. And that uh, passed one chamber, but not the other? Yes, it passed the Senate. Thursday evening, and then went back to the House for a concurrence vote, where they would, you know, agree to the changes, and it failed there by a 38 to 53 vote. Uh, House members said that they just needed more time to look at this before giving it the green light, and I don't think it was supposed to go into effect until the year 2020 anyway, so they said, you know, why don't we just revisit this next year? What was the objection? Um, The objection is... Uh, Critics worry that this would open the door for products that would discriminate against those with pre-existing conditions and wouldn't offer any guarantee of coverage for some. And then it would also weaken the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, by pulling out healthy members from that pool and therefore making premiums and prices go up for the rest of the folks in it. Okay. Uh, Unless there's anything else we should talk about before we take a break, let's come back with Headliner of the Week. Stay with us. Melissa from Michigan. I work an extra part-time job serving lunch at my child's school, but I still can't afford to put food on our table. Daniel from California. Choosing whether to pay the rent or pay to fix the car to get to work doesn't leave us with much at all. Now we can't even pay for meals. Hunger is a story we can end. End it at feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Headliner of the week, 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 headliner of the week. 
Headliner of the Week. Who's hot? And we're back with Headliner of the Week, where we decide who the most important, influential person, place, or thing in this week's news. Uh, we'll start with uh, the the married couple, since we don't always have huh. the married couple on Domecast, Andy and Taylor. Uh, and of course, we'll start uh, to begin with with our guest. So Taylor Knopf, who's your headliner of the week? Great. I will nominate Wake Forest Baptist Hospital up in Winston-Salem. Um, so earlier this year, they discovered that they uh, had errors in their pathology lab that led to some patients being falsely treated for breast cancer and then other patient, patients not being treated at all. So after that, the federal agency that controls Medicaid and Medicare dollars, which is a lot of money, um, penalized them and said, if you guys can't get your act together, we will take away your Medicare funding. And so the hospital has been going through thousands of cases. And just recently, in the last couple of days, they came back into compliance and they will be receiving federal dollars. So Wake Forest Baptist for cleaning up their mess. Didn't a couple of people get like mastectomies because they thought they yes, were they cancer? had operations. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Wow. That they unnecessary operations for breast cancer. Okay, Wake Forest Baptist Hospital um, getting out of trouble with federal regulators uh, is in the hat for headliner of the week. And Andy. Uh, All right, you said the most influential people. I'm gonna do a self plug here for the new McClatchy. Charlotte Observer, News Observer, Durham Herald Sun Influencer Series, which uh, our first story came out today, Monday, and we interviewed 58 out of six, or 57 out of 60 people, and they gave us their top five most important issues. Among them is polarization, and that can be seen, <laughs> that can be seen on Jones Street, not just over policy, but over which festivals, that's right, which North Carolina festivals deserve the honor of being the state festival of spring, right? And so we have the Azalea Festival in Wilmington, which I've never been there, but Lauren says is... Uh, it, can, it can get messy. Uh, I, that's where people dress up in these old colonial dresses, if I understand that correctly, and then yeah. people vote on the girl that... I don't know how I, I don't know that rules. I've just heard things about the garden parties, so... That's what have you heard? I don't. My friends would be very mad at me if I disclosed those secrets. All right, this is a what family channel. What happens in garden parties stays in garden parties? Right. It's more like what happens in Wilmington stays in Wilmington. <laughs> so then you have the, uh, the oh gosh, what was the Fayetteville one? The, Dogwood Festival. The Dogwood Festival. And apparently the organizers of both are mad at each other because it was the Azalea Festival that wanted the designation of official North Official Car celebration of spring in North right. Carolina, and both <laughs> of those at the same time. They both celebrate spring, so Fayetteville lawmakers jumped in. Who doesn't want to see a good old-fashioned fight between Wilmington and Fayetteville, right? Anyway, that's an example of polarization, which uh, was not mentioned by our influencers, but... Shocking. Uh, <laughs> yeah, shocking, but is a great example of how, you know, this world just can't agree on anything. <laughs> And uh, keep, keep stay tuned to our Influencer Series because we're going to be coming out with these every two weeks. Um, we'll have different reporters writing about them, and we'll be asking these this group of 60 people different questions every couple weeks. The next one is about education. And actually, um, you can weigh in, too, uh, by going to newsobserver.com, finding the story, and then we've got a, a sort of a survey at the end where uh, anybody who's a reader can weigh in 
on um, some of the issues involved and say what politicians should be talking about related to education. So that's a good plug uh, for our influencer series. Uh, but the actual headliner I lost track of in all that is the Azalea Festival and or it's the official spring festival of North Carolina. Is that the headliner? I, I do believe it was the the debate between what should be the official spring uh, festival. Spring Wars. Spring. Okay. Fayetteville versus Wilmington. Uh, so spring polarization between the Azalea, the lit Azalea Festival, <laughs> and 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 the. Uh, I don't know anything about the, uh, the Dogwood Festival. I feel festivals. like any festival in Fayetteville is probably lit, too. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, those are in the hat for Headliner of the Week. Uh, Colin Campbell, who's your Headliner of the Week? Well, I'm going with uh, State Senator Jeff Tart, a uh, Republican from Mecklenburg County, because I think uh, he was in the news several times last week. Uh, and probably, uh, while last week was difficult for everyone because of the grueling schedule, uh, Jeff Tart, I think, probably had the worst week in Raleigh. That's a award the Washington Post used to give out, and I think we can refer for D.C. and we can give that to uh, Jeff Tart as well as making him headliner of the week. And uh, he had three different things that did not go his way last week. First, the budget technical corrections bill came out, and they stripped out the funding that was going to go to teachers' classrooms, but only in his district and through the website Donors Choose. Uh, that was the issue where Donors Choose decided they did not like that idea because they don't want to uh, give things only to a certain school district. So they were not on board with it. So ultimately that funding uh, got stripped out in the budget technical corrections and went somewhere else. And then Jeff Tart almost had a win later in the week when he put something, uh, managed to get a transportation bill amended to include uh, I think so about $600 million in potential funding to help modify or cancel the I-77 toll lanes contract outside of Charlotte, which has been a big controversial issue in his district. A lot of people, uh, a lot of his constituents very upset about having to pay for toll lanes. Uh, this funding would have helped uh, Department of Transportation and Governor Cooper get out of that contract and uh, cancel the project or at least modify it. Uh, that got through the Senate, but then the House uh, pulled that out of the bill later, so it uh, did not end up happening for, for Jeff Tart on that front. And then he had a third piece of bad news on Saturday when the new Constitution Party held its convention. Of course, the Constitution Party, one of the brand new third parties in North Carolina, this one very conservative, likely to pull some votes away from uh, the Republican Party and the races they enter. Uh, they fielded candidates in, I think it was five or six uh, General Assembly races for the fall, uh, of which there was only one that looked to me to be a particularly competitive race where the Constitution Party folks might play a spoiler role, and that was in the Senate district of Mr. Jeff Tart, uh, who is already in a fairly uh, competitive seat uh, with a Democratic opponent for that, where the Constitution Party uh, could potentially hurt him among uh, conservative voters. So for all those three reasons, uh, Jeff Tart had the worst week in Raleigh and is uh, my pick for headliner of the week. Okay. Uh, and last but not least, Lauren Horsch, who's your headliner of the week? So I got to go for a zombie provision out of this DOT bill that Colin just briefly touched on. Um, and it's it's a provision that we have talked about on this podcast before. It is the um, allowing beer and wine on the passenger ferry to Orcacoke. Did I say that right? Orcacoke? Orcacoke. Whatever. Is that like a Minnesota issue of not being able to pronounce Orcacoke? No, I can't. <laughs> it's like when I say bag, it's fine. Um, no, so this... This provision we knew was going to be difficult to pass because it has to deal with alcohol anyway. So they slipped it into the omnibus DOT DMV asks, their, their legislative requests. Um, and it was 
remove it was slipped into two different bills first off it was slipped into an abc omnibus bill and then the dot bill too so the senate stripped it out of the abc bill and the house stripped it out of the uh, dot bill but then when the dot bill came back in house rules on like thursday night guess what was back beer and wine on the ferries on passenger ferries um and you know, we didn't know if that was going to go through with or without it, but it was stripped out, again, on the House floor. Um, so you will not be able to enjoy a glass of beer or a glass of wine while on the passenger ferry. It's only a 45-minute ride, but a lot of people were concerned about drinking and driving once you get off the ferry or potentially getting too drunk on the ferry, even though it's a 45-minute ride. And I do believe that would take a lot of drinking really fast to get you drunk on that ride. Especially if it's only beer and wine and probably the... Uh, low-gravity beers that the state government would serve out. Yeah, so no $7 Bud Lights. Sorry, guys. Isn't it a passenger ferry? Yes. Okay, so they're not driving off no. this yeah. boat. No, but yeah. they were concerned they that get once the they get off the drive. ferry, right. then they would drive. True. And right. there was also some concerns about having young children around alcohol. And I don't know about y'all, but I was in a bar at the age of like 10 with my parents all the time. Well, it's Minnesota, so I don't really so. know. Yeah. And correct me um, if I'm wrong, but most bars do have parking lots out front where most of their patrons sometimes get in a car after being at the bar. But anyway. Yes. Um, but as I'm reminded, we don't technically have bars in North Carolina. They're clubs or social, whatever. There's too many of these provisions. But so well, they're generally yeah. also not state-run bars. So yeah. that's another. Um, that was also a concern yeah. that it would be the state selling alcohol. Um, and then there's concerns about security. Who would you know be there if someone got too drunk and almost fell off? Well, ferries do have security. So, but anyway. That provision is finally gone, and we will not worry about it for the rest of this biennium, I hope. It's a zombie. It might come back. <laughs> Don't hold your breath. <laughs> Fingers crossed. All right. So beer and wine and on the ferry in the hat for headliner of the week, the uh, provision that won't die. Um, so I do feel like I have to pick something related to transparency this week, given that that was such a theme. So uh, it's either beer and wine or uh, Jeff Tart. And I do think uh, that um, because it's related to this budget provision that um, slipped in there that only directed um, school supply money, uh, as Andy wrote, uh, extra school supply money to a single district, uh, that was something that was kind of a, um, a, you know, just sort of in the budget without a whole lot of, uh, um, you know, hearing. Uh, I think I will pick Jeff Tart, uh, and since he also was involved in uh, all this other stuff this week, I think that'll sum up a fast-paced week at the legislature. So Jeff Tart is our headliner of the week, probably not for reasons that he would necessarily like, uh, but maybe he'll have a better week this week. Uh, for Taylor Knopf, Andy Spey, Lauren Horsch, and Colin Campbell, I'm Jordan Schrader. Thanks for listening, and catch us next week on Domecast. You've been listening to the Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.